Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. Tonight's event is part of the Intermarium Lecture Series sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. This evening, we'll be hearing from Dr. Paul Kengor. Dr. Kengor is Professor of Political Science at Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania, and a New York Times bestselling author of over a dozen books. He is Senior Director and Chief Academic Fellow at the Institute for Faith and Freedom and former Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. His articles have appeared in publications from the Washington Post and USA Today to the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. He's a longtime columnist and Senior Editor for the American Spectator. Dr. Kengor is an internationally recognized authority on, among other topics, Ronald Reagan, the Cold War, communism, socialism, and conservatism. In August 2020, he released his latest book, The Devil and Karl Marx, which examines the chilling side of Marx and the Marxist revolution that still rages today. Dr. Kengor, welcome and thank you for joining us this evening. Well, thanks, Hannah. Good to be with you and always good to do anything with, with IWP, a, a place, an institution, that, an institute that I admire very much. And such great respect for John Lenchowski and all that he's done there. And, uh, and so a shout out to him and my, my good friend, Marek, and also folks like Ken DeGraffenreid and others. So it's good to be back. Thanks, thanks. So I, I guess we have an hour here all together. And so my, my subject is my book, The Devil and Karl Marx. And it's all together, I turned in, pretty long manuscript of about 140,000 words. And so this is a book that we, um, we put together about 400 pages altogether. And I say put together because it could have been a lot longer. And in fact, the, the editor of the book um, published by Tan Books was John Morehouse. And, um, and I, I, I gotta say very tragically, John, John died a couple weeks ago. It was it was very unexpected. It was a shock. He was only 51 years old, and um, died of a heart attack at home around his family, five young kids, his wife. Um, very sad. And and so this is this is the first talk I've given on this book since since John's death. So, but he did uh, he did a remarkable job. And Tan Books is a is a Catholic publishing house. In fact, it's a there's a joint it's a joint group, Tan Books and Saint Benedict Press. So this book is um, it's it's very Catholic. It's interesting. I got criticized in one of one of the negative reviews of the book. I didn't get many negative reviews. Um, and in fact, liberals just simply don't even review it. They don't even read it. Uh, I did. Get, I think I got a couple one star reviews at Amazon. <laughs> you could, one of those appeared within about a millisecond of the book uh, being released live August 18th on Amazon, which showed that the person hadn't read it. But but one of the re one of the reviewers was a reviewer from um, a young guy from National Review. And, and he criticized the book for um, ha having a limited appeal mainly to mainly to Catholics. And, and 
one of the things I pointed out in my response to that review, a national review, was, yeah, I, I, I plead guilty. It's a very Catholic book. It's a Catholic publishing house, but it's it's and it, but it's it's much more than that. It's a, a biography of Karl Marx, a spiritual biography of Karl Marx. And why did I, why did I write this? Well, I wrote out a little bit of an outline here so I could, you guys could follow along with me. Basically five points here. Why did I write this? Point one. Two, what's my thesis? Three, is this book strictly about Marx? Um, four, the key issues that, that I hit in the book. And five, why, why do we need to know this? Why do we need to know this topic? So I'll go through each of those five points and just talking off the top of my head. And then after that, I'll, I'll take any questions that you have. First of all, wh why, did, why did I write this? I've done, I've done spiritual biographies of a number of different figures. And really my first book, well, my first book was my, was my dissertation. And that was on the subject of the vice presidency published around 2000, 2001, um, Lexington Books uh, uh, with, with Roman Littlefield. And my my first kind of real book was a book called God and Ronald Reagan, which came out in 2004. In fact, it was from that book that I would eventually meet John Lynchowski and so many others, um, especially through the person of Bill Clark. And Bill Clark was uh, probably Ronald Reagan's closest uh, friend and advisor, really the guy who was responsible for, for taking down Soviet communism more than any other member of the Reagan administration. And he did that at the NSC with people like John John Lynchowski, Ken DeGraff and Reed. Um, boy, I'm forgetting some. Roger Robinson, um, a number of other people, another number of people connected with with IWP. So that was really my first book, and it was yeah, a spiritual biography, but also a foreign policy book. So God and Ronald Reagan. I followed that up. I did a book called God and George W. Bush. I even did a book called God and Hillary Clinton which people always think I'm joking when I say that. No, it was, it was an attempt to look at spiritually somebody from the political left, somebody, somebody from, the re, from the religious left, not somebody who I supported or would have voted for, but nonetheless, I looked at her faith. And I got offers to do a number of different books over the years, spiritual biographies of people, and turned them all down. I didn't always want to do what my publisher at HarperCollins once called God and books. I even got asked to do God and Donald Trump in 2016. And I passed on that one. Uh, somebody else ended up ended up doing it. And I was more consumed with other projects than any than any than anything else. But hey, I won't, I won't go into all of that. The so I've always been interested in the spiritual life of Karl Marx, and so a book on that would not be called God and Karl Marx because Marx didn't believe in God. Marx rejected God. In fact, as the one of the poems that I quote at the start of the book says, and it was written. This poem was written by Marx in 1837. He said, "Thus heaven I forfeited. I know it full well." My soul, once true to God, is chosen for hell. It's pretty chilling. And a lot of the guy's poetry, verse, plays was pretty chilling. And it was, I think that that particular, it's, it's hard to know with Marx when he's speaking biographically, when he's, when he's speaking autobiographically, when he's talking about himself, when he's putting himself in the place of others, 
when he's just writing about somebody else in the way that a poet would or that or that a writer would. But that particular stanza, I mean, that is pretty autobiographical. Thus, heaven I've forfeited, right? I've, I know it full well. So Marx, who had once been a Christian, and, and he rejected that. And I wouldn't say, um, as a Catholic in particular, that Marx's soul was chosen for hell. I don't know if Marx felt his soul was chosen for hell. But, but that idea that heaven I forfeited, I know it full well. Well, that was Marx, because he ended up rejecting God. And he, he was baptized in 1823, 1824, around the time that he was five or six years old. He was born May 5th, 1818 in Trier, Germany. So Trier is spelled like Trier, T-R-I-E-R. And it is, it is a very religious city. In fact, the ancient cathedral in Trier is is the one that was built by none other than saint helena mother of constantine and it was helena who made the pilgrimage to the holy land in the late 300s so around 324 330 320 is that period we're talking about and she went there and brought back a number of different um, relics artifacts in fact it's more than relics and artifacts she brought brought back what she believed was the crown of thorns, which is today in Notre Dame. She brought back what she believes was the holy lance. We had the lance that the Roman soldier um, pierced Christ with. She brought back, and this is this to this day is in the cathedral in Trier. She brought back the holy robe or holy coat that Christ had wore, and on his way to the crucifixion that the Roman soldiers cast lots for at the foot of the cross. In fact, Marx in one of his plays, one of his really chilling, sick, kind of scary plays, has his devil character, his demon character, who's like sawing on this violin. He, had, he dons this holy robe of Christ and this kind of mockery of Christ. Another poem that Marx wrote that I lead off in the front of the book with from 1841, he says, see this sword, this blood-dark sword, which stabs unerringly within thy soul. Uh, see this sword, the prince of darkness sold it to me. It, it's, it's that kind of thing that, that pervades Marx's poetry, his writing. He's writing about pale maidens who, who commit suicide, some of them in suicide packs. And a lot of this, this is a reflection of Marx's own personal life including including his, his really wretched family life. This is an amazing fact. I, I mean, name for me, anybody listening, another individual that you could think of historically that this applies to. Marx lost two daughters to suicide in suicide pacts with their husbands. So Marx had two daughters who killed themselves in suicide pacts with their husbands. Uh, Marx wrote about pale maidens committing suicide. He wrote about suicide packs. He wrote about women committing suicide by ingesting poison. Uh, two of Marx's daughters committed suicide by ingesting poison given to them in suicide packs by their husbands. In fact, in one case, the husband backed out. He gave the daughter the, the poison. She killed herself. And then he backed out. Edward Aveling, a scoundrel, awful guy. 
atheist socialist. In fact, a lot like Marx, uh, just just a just a wretched person that no one liked. And and contemporaries of Marx's daughter and Abling thought that he that he should have been convicted for murder, for killing her, for homicide. And he ran off with her money, whatever inheritance she had, <coughs> which was not much, not much of, of an inheritance. The other son who did go through with a suicide pact with Marx's daughter. His name was Paul Lafargue. And he was, he had very low self-esteem. And part of that is attributable to the way his father-in-law treated him. Paul was partly Cuban. So to Karl Marx, that meant that he was partly Negro. In fact, Marx and Engels, they tried to deduce with scientific accuracy how much Negro blood is in Paul. One-eighth, one-twelfth. Uh, Marx referred to Paul as Negrillo or the gorilla because because he contained this he had he had this Cuban blood and this is something that I hit in this book Marx and Engels were both racists they were bigots and Marx was very anti-semitic I mean some of the statements from Marx quote the Israelite faith is repulsive to me Right. What is the worldly God of the Jew? Money. Haggling. Right. The, uh, Marx writes some amazingly anti-Semitic stuff. If Karl Marx was a conservative, a right winger, somebody that conservatives today liked, a person who conservative professors had busts of Marx in their offices at their colleges, Marx would be canceled. Mar Marx would be finished. He would be widely known everywhere as a racist, but he's not widely known as a racist. He's not known as a racist, as an anti-Semite or bigot at all, because he's a leftist <laughs> and, left, and leftists protect him. That's, that's all there is to it. I always say, um, in fact, I suggested this to Young America's Foundation, that a campaign should be started by college students to um, cancel Marx, making the case that Marx was a racist. Uh, I, I mean, there are they're trying to dename things named for Ronald Reagan because of uh, one statement that Reagan made to Nixon in a private phone call in 1972 that just came out a few months ago. I've written about this for American Spectator. By the way, I'm at the offices of the American Spectator. So if you look behind me there, there's uh, Bob Terrell with Bill Clinton and a copy of the American Spectator. So if you see that, that's where, where I am right now. But I, I wrote about this attempt to cancel Reagan for something Reagan said that's hard to understand, hard to make sense out of, hard to really know what Reagan meant, um, definitely seems insensitive, totally out of character for Reagan, but frankly is nothing compared to what Marx said many, 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 many times. Irony there, and this gets back to point one on um, on on why I chose Marx. So Marx had been Marx was from a Jewish family, a family that had a number of rabbis in the previous generations. They they were they were religious Jews. They were practicing Jews, um, you know, fairly orthodox. Marx's father converted to Christianity. He converted to Lutheranism, and so did Marx as well. And I talk about the relationship between the father and the son quite a bit in the book. The father remained a religious man and even told Carl, he said, you know, it's good, Carl, to have to have belief in God. You know, belief in God, it's a virtuous thing. It's good for a man. 
It's good for a person to have that. But Marx would go on to reject God, mainly in college. In fact, he came under the influence of a of a religion professor who was an atheist. So you can see <laughs> nothing has changed, right? You go to most universities today and, and, and you could you could take a religion course. It's probably probably taught by an atheist, not where I teach at Grove City College. Um, somebody who goes to goes to my church has uh, their son went to a typical secular university and and I was talking to the parents and I, I was worried about that, about the kids' faith. And, and 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 they they told me said oh it's okay he he signed up for a course on religion his his first semester I'm thinking hmm I I asked them around Thanksgiving or Christmas break how's it going and they said oh it's, it's terribly liberal and in the religion course it's taught by an atheist <laughs> said, well of course it is we think it's taught by C.S. Lewis of course it's taught by an atheist so even in Germany in the 1830s Marx took a course from it was like a systematic theology course taught by an atheist. And, and the professor's name was Bruno Bauer, who was very anti-Semitic. And he and his favorite student, Carl, would even launch an, a, an archives of atheism journal together, which didn't last very long. In fact, one of, the, one of their escapades, they get together and they ride donkeys into a nearby village on Palm Sunday, mocking the entrance of Christ into Jerusalem. So that was that was typical. I see something popping up there. Right, I want to make sure I'm still connected. The uh, so why why did I write this point one here in my little outline? I've always been interested in the faith of Marx, uh, you know, Marx and religion, Marx's rejection of God, what Marx believed, his faith. I wasn't going to call this book that um, God and Karl Marx. And I've I've always known about Marx's fascination with the devil. Now, to that end, point two, what's my thesis? Well, it's not this. I have not found any evidence that Karl Marx was possessed, that he was a Satanist, right? And I always tell people, and, and young people in particular that are watching this, you never want to overstate things with your research, but also you don't want to understate. And I've seen many times where, where people will say, well, you don't have proof here that the guy was a Satan worshiper. Just forget this. You know? <laughs> well, I mean, you don't have to have the whole enchilada here. All right? you, 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 you look at the guy's poetry and other stuff and, and things the guy wrote. It's pretty, it's, it's a, this is a very disturbing portrait. All right? I mean, the guy doesn't have to be you know, at full demonic possession or anything. Right. But, but you know, the, the, there's, this is pretty, this is pretty dark. There's some very, very shady stuff going on here. I do quote some people who think that maybe Marx was possessed. And one of them, Robert Payne, a British man of letters, a British professor of, uh, he was a translator. He, uh, he, 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 he read plays, a playwright himself, I believe. Uh, very thoughtful um, individual, and he wrote two outstanding biographies of Marx. In fact, I think he wrote more than two, but one was published by Simon and Schuster in 1968. I still think it's the best biography of Marx. Another by NYU Press. That was a few years later, and in the 1968 Simon and Schuster book, he has a chapter called, called "The Demons," where where he says in there that that he believes that Marx might well have been possessed. Let me see if I can get the exact quote here from you. Um, 
because I don't want to misrepresent this. Here it is. This is an exact quote from, from Payne. <clears throat> the Demons. 19, that's the 1960, the name of the chapter in his 1968 biography. Quote, there were times when Marx seemed to be possessed by demons. Marx had the devil's view of the world and he had the devil's malignity. Sometimes he seemed to know that he was accomplishing works of evil. So that's pain. Pain, pain actually writes that. Now, another who says this is actually who goes even further is the, Rev, is the late Reverend Richard Wormbron, who wrote uh, the book Tortured for Christ. And he had, been, he had been tortured in communist prisons in Romania. And he said he was tortured by, by men who literally, literally chanted, I am the devil, I am the devil. And Warren Braun even said to one of his captors at one point, he's like, why are you doing this? Why are you so vicious? Why are you so cruel? And, and the communist cap, uh, uh, captor or, or his prison guards said to him, I've lived, I've lived all my life for this moment when I can express all the evil in my heart against you. And Mark and Warren Braun said, he said that I had people torturing me who, who shouted, I am the devil. He said, all the scenes in Dante's Inferno cannot begin to compare to the hell of what life was like in communist prison camps and what they did to religious prisoners. And in Tortured for Christ, Warren Braun even said that there were some scenes from the prison of Potesti that were so vile and so cruel and so diabolical and so indeed truly satanic that he can't even repeat them because his heart would break from talking about them. Now he wrote that Wormbrand did Tortured for Christ over 40 years ago. Wormbrand also did a book called Marx and Satan in the 1980s where he argues that he thought that Marx was a Satanist. And I, I say in my book, I can't confirm that. I don't know. Just like I can't confirm whether or not whether or not the guy whether or not the guy was possessed. But in in Tortured for Christ, Wormbrand said some of the scenes from the prison in Potesti in Romania were so vile and wretched that I can't even repeat them. We now know from interviews that have been done, documents that are now out there. There's an amazing website. In fact, I quote this. I have a whole chapter called The Hell That Was that was Potesti in this book. This book, over 400 pages, about a third of it is about Karl Marx. The rest is about communism generally, including other people, Mikhail Bakunin, Saul Alinsky, Kate Millett, who was called the Mao Zedong of the women's, women's movement. She wrote the book Sexual Politics, which was her dissertation at Columbia in the uh, late 1960s. I interviewed Kate's sister, Mallory, at length, Mallory believes that Kate was actually possessed. Frankfurt School people, Wilhelm Reich, Walter Benjamin. Walter Benjamin was into some really weird stuff. But anyway, Potesti. We now know that Potesti, some of the things that uh, Wormbrand couldn't speak of, couldn't, couldn't write of, they were, they were tying religious prisoners to crosses. They were making other religious prisoners go up and urinate on these people. They took, they took pastors and they forced them to consecrate, consecrate human excrement in the form of communion wafers and put them in people's mouths as, as like mock communion. They would take urine and put it in a chalice that was to be used as the, as the blood of Christ. 
Christ was called the great idiot crucified. The Blessed Mother was called the great whore. This was stuff that happened in the in the in the prison of Potesti. And yes, in the prison of Potesti, there were black masses that went on. So even this book, as I say in the beginning, probably should be called less um, the devil and Karl Marx than the devil and communism, because I go into all of this stuff across the board on communism. And the hardest thing about writing this book was limiting it to 140,000 words. I mean, to really talk about the true evil and diabolical nature of communism would take would be would be multi volumes, right? It would take it would take much more than that. So um, point three. Is this is this book strictly about Marx? No, it's not. And I go through to some of the counter response to this, including and here's the very Catholic part of the book. One of the reasons that John Morehouse and Tan Books was so interested in this. And I first saw this when when I was not Catholic, in fact, wasn't even a Christian at that point. And saw it even more when I was Protestant, Presbyterian, as I as I became a Christian, started reading more and more about this. But the the Catholic Church's response to to this to this uh, to the the diabolical aspects of communism is really extraordinary. It, 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 it's it's an amazing thing, and it goes back to 1846 in the encyclical that year published by Pope Pius the Ninth. And that was the start of a 32-year pontificate that went from 1846 to 1878, called Qui Pluribus, published in 1846. That predicted all the so much of the horrific stuff that would happen under communism, from the attack on property and religion, even to the family. In fact, Marx and Engels wrote in the Communist Manifesto, abolition of the family, exclamation mark. Even the most radical flare up at this infamous proposal of the communists. That's verbatim, actually says that in the Communist Manifesto. And uh, so the Catholic Church was, was warning about this in encyclicals in 1846 for a Communist Manifesto that was published two years later, 1848. I also quote in the book a letter between Marx and Engels where Engels refers to it as the Communist Confession of Faith. He says to Marx, give a little more thought to the to the communist confession of faith. I think we should I think we should drop the catechetical form and simply call it the manifesto, the communist manifesto. So that's the name that stuck. That's the name that they that they ended up with. So point three, is this strictly about Marx? No, it's not. Um, It's 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 about much more than Marx It's about Marxism in general. It's about communism in general, about Lenin, Stalin, Trotsky, you know, Mao, Pol Pot, Castro, uh, the Frankfurt School, all these, all these different characters, Marcuse, you name it. Key issues, part, part four. Here I have four key issues. One, Marx's, per, uh, Marx's personal life, <clears throat> which I talked about a little bit with his daughters, also with his uh, his the way that he treated his wife the people around him was terrible uh, I, I mean marx both his his wife and his mother expressed the wish that carl would start earning some capital right, rather than just writing about capital some of this stuff people listening will know was covered by paul johnson 
in his book, Intellectuals, the chapter on Marx. Marx was a mooch, a miser, refused to work, refused to bathe, refused to groom, was plagued by boils and carbuncles. I'm going through and reading some of the old medical reports by Marx's doctors who are, who are confounded and why Marx is the only one in his household that's like plagued by these boils that are so bad that the guy has to lay on his side. And by the way, they're at their oozing worst when he's writing Das Kapitel, which probably explains why it was such an oozing, nasty work, such an angry work. Marx even said, yeah, I hope the bourgeoisie, if they'll remember anything about me, will remember my carbuncles, right? But his doctors are trying to figure out, hmm, I don't understand why Marx is suffering from all these warts and carbuncles and boils. Hey, doc, I got an idea. Guy doesn't bathe. <laughs> the guy doesn't take a bath. He doesn't clean himself. <laughs> Not rocket science here, man. I, I, I mean, gee, I, you got to be a doctor to figure that one out. But, but, but Marx, Marx was a slob. He got all of his money from his parents when his, his parents had to finally cut him off. When his dad died, by the way, his dad referred, uh, I quote a March 2nd, 1837 letter from his father, where he asked Carl, he says, that heart of yours, that heart of yours, it's very unsettled. It, it, is, is it a heart possessed? Is it a heart governed by a demon? And if so, is that demon Faustian? So you have all these people in the life of Marx who say, oh, yeah, he'd be chanting the words of Faust. He has like like a wet eyes, like a wet goblin. Right. All this. My little demon, my wicked knave, his wife refer, referring to him that way, his son referring to him that way. Engels. And I have a chapter with this title referred to him at referred to Marx as the monster of 10,000 devils. The monster of ten thousand devils, right? As if a monster of ten, yeah, it's just just crazy, crazy stuff. But Marx's personal life, he was refused to earn a living, uh, mooched all of his money from his family. When his father died, he went to his mother to get more money from her. And when the old hag wouldn't give him any money, he said, "To hell with her," and that was it. He had it had it with his mother. And there's such great irony in Marx and Engels in their stupid book, The Communist Manifesto, calling for, in point three of their 10-point plan, abolition of all right of inheritance. How hypocritical can that be? These guys lived off of their inheritance. In fact, they lived off of Engels' father's money. If it wasn't for that, they wouldn't have had any money at all. Marx uh, got the family nursemaid, Lenchen, pregnant behind his wife's back. Uh, Marx didn't pay Lenchen a dime. In fact, Lenchen had grown up with Marx's wife, Jenny. Uh, she was like a sister to Jenny. She had been the nursemaid, this poor working class girl in the Marx household, and or no, in Jenny's family's household. So Jenny's family lent Jenny, who became like a bond slave or servant to the Marx family, lent her out to, to Marx's family. Marx refused to pay her a penny. And then when he got Jenny pregnant, or when, when he got Lynchin pregnant behind Jenny's back, he refused to acknowledge that the child was his and refused to pay the child a penny of child support. 
In fact, the child became named Freddie, named after Friedrich Ingalls. So Ingalls accepted responsibility and paternity for that. Ingalls didn't care what people thought of his reputation. He refused to get married. He uh, refused to marry any of the women that he lived with. And you know he didn't care what neither Marx or Ingalls believed in family. Blessed is he who has no family, was what Marx wrote to Ingalls. And Marx wrote to one of his would-be son-in-laws, the gorilla. Uh, he wrote to him that only an idiot, only a fool would choose marriage. Why would, why would you want to do this? So uh, yeah, another thing here, feminists, Marxist feminists, Angela Davis and some of these others, Angela Davis. I mean, come on, Angela, you know, you're, 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 you're black and a woman, you're a feminist. Marx was a misogynist. He was a racist. Give me a break. Right. I mean, maybe call yourself a communist. Why would you call yourself a Marxist of, of, of all things? All, another key issue in this book, and I'm watching the clock here. So Marx's personal life, Marx's bigotry, his anti-Semitism, his racism, and two others that I wanted to note, Marx's belief in abolition, and a fourth, criticism. Marx uh, was all about abolition, 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 abolition of the family, abolition of private property, as he and Engels put it in the manifesto, abolition of all religion and all morality. In fact, they write in the Communist Manifesto, the entire communist theory may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property. One of Marx's admiring biographers, Francis Wien, says, well, it's, it's, it's ludicrous to blame Marx for the gulags and, 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 for, and for all the death and destruction. Really? If, if you come up with a, with, with, a, with a philosophy whose entire essence is the entire thing may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property, I mean, you're going you're gonna to need guns and gulags to take away people's private property. I mean, it, this is Pope Benedict XVI and uh, John Paul II said uh, Marx's main failure wasn't even an economic one. It was anthropological. It's a failure, a failure to understand human nature. Among other things, I mean, you try to take away people's private property, you're going you're gonna to have, you're gonna have a, a bloodbath on your hands. And this is a basic right, a fundamental right, a natural right. Judeo-Christian law from the cave to the courthouse, thou shalt not steal. I mean, you want to abolish private property, you're going to have, you know, World War, you know, three, World War three million on your, three billion on your hands. I, I mean, you're going to need guns and gulags. In fact, Marx and Engels, after the 10-point plan, or there at the 10-point plan, it's calls for abolition of private property, abolition of all right of inheritance, uh, progressive income tax, and so forth. Marx and Engels write, of course, in order to do this, de uh, despotic inroads will be necessary. Yeah, you're going to need despotism. So they were all about abolition. They were all about criticism. And this gets back, back, back to Marx on religion. Marx in an 1843 letter to Arnold Rouge called for the ruthless criticism of everything that exists. In his Opiate of the Masses essay, he uses the word criticism 29 times. He refers to religion as the as the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, the soul of soulless co conditions. Religion is the opiate of the masses. And he says there in that essay, the criticism of religion is the beginning of all criticism. Marx called for, this is um, 
fascinating. In fact, it's at the very it's at the very end of the Communist Manifesto, and I'll give you this line because I think this is probably this may be maybe the most important line in the Communist Manifesto. Everybody remembers the end of the manifesto, right? Workers of the world unite, throw off your chains. You've got nothing but but your chains to lose. Everybody forgets about this. They write in the manifesto, I got, they write this. They call for the abolition of the present state of things, right? Professors at IWP, if you had a student who turned in a term paper, professor, I'm going to argue here for the abolition of the present state of things, right? F, right? Abolition of the present state of things. But in the end of the manifesto, they wrote, they, the communists, open to, openly declare that their ends can be attained only by, are you ready for this? The forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions, right? They called for the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. I mean, if you're writing anything today, you say something like, uh, you know, we need to change the current social conditions that are causing harm in society. It was something like that, right? Can you imagine calling for the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions? I mean, these guys were the extremist extremists. Now, this is really a, a totally totalitarian ideology of complete and utter fundamental transformation. They say also at the close of the manifesto, communists everywhere support every revolutionary movement against the existing social and political order of things. And here's my favorite. Marx had a favorite quote from Goethe's Faust. In fact, it comes from the Mephistopheles, the devil demon character in Goethe's Faust. Friends said that you could hear Marx chanting this line as well as reciting the line. And what was the line? Here it is. You got your notepads out? Everything that exists deserves to perish. Everything that exists deserves to perish. That's Karl Marx. That's Karl Marx. Payne and others have said this. When you, when you hear people say, oh, Marxism, you young people. Marxism is really all about sharing and being kind to your neighbor. Love thy neighbor as thyself, right? Yeah. No. <laughs> you want a credo for Marxism? Marx gives it to you. Everything that exists deserves to perish. Marx wanted to burn down the house. And he would stand there in the flaming embers, fist in the air, right? Right now I am ready anew to begin the revolution. This is not a kind, loving ideology. This is, a, this is the ideology that wants to burn down the house. Criticism, 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 abolition, abolition, abolition. Which brings me to my fifth and final point. I'm at 40 minutes, so I should stop with this. Um, why do we need to know this stuff? For the reasons that I just went through. And when you have so many young people today saying positive things about communism, positive things about socialism. And Marx and Engels taught, according to Marxism-Leninism, 
history would travel through this dialectical stage, this series of stages from slavery and feudalism to capitalism, to socialism, to communism. So socialism was the final transitionary step to communism. That socialism was to lead you to communism. That was the whole point of this. Marion Smith of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation said that he likes to say the difference between communism and socialism, just as Christians aspire to heaven, socialists aspire to communism, right? And uh, Pope Benedict XVI said, communism is like their new Jerusalem, their heaven on earth, right? But their heaven without God. But there's, um, there's a very religious-like um, aspiration for, for these people. Reagan, Ronald Reagan said, communism, that religion of theirs. So I think uh, why, why people today, young people today, who are saying positive things about communism, a recent survey, a third of millennials said um, that they, they favor abolition of private property. Uh, you know, a, a large numbers of people saying uh, just very disturbing numbers of people favoring socialism, favoring communism, saying they would vote for a socialist for president. My favorite study a few years back, this was done by the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. It was, I think, 30% of millennials and 28% of all Americans, 28% of all Americans believe that George W. Bush killed more people than Joseph Stalin. That's insane. That's insane. That's crazy. Why do young people believe this stuff? Because, because they're ignorant. They're, they don't know this stuff. They won't read books like this. I hear all the time, Communist Manifesto is a pretty good book if you just read it. That's easy, you guys. Just say, oh, yeah, have you read it? They haven't read it. They haven't read it. Because if they came to things like abolition of all right of inheritance, abolition of all private property, abolition of the family, abolition of all morality, all religion, they wouldn't buy in any of that. They're sitting there with their computers and their Starbucks and telling them, hey, dude, you don't get to inherit any of your parents' money that they're going to leave you. Abolition of all right inheritance. That's Marx. Right. They, they'd have second thoughts. Um, so, you know, so that's why I think they need to know things like this, read books like this in order to be informed because they're supporting socialism. They're supporting communism because they're ignorant of it. They don't know any better. All right. I'll stop there and I'll take any, any questions that you have. I think we got about 18 minutes left. Yeah. So thank you yeah. for your remarks. Okay. <laughs> we do have yeah. a few questions coming in. Um, the first question, I believe you touched on it a little bit um, in your remarks, but what inspired you to study Karl Marx and Marxism? Well, it's a long story, but I was, um, when I was Hannah's age, so I was um, an undergrad in college, although Hannah's probably a grad student, but I was at um, University of Pittsburgh. I was a senior, 1989-1990, and I was actually pre-med. I was pre-med. I worked for um, the organ transplant team at the University of Pittsburgh, of all things. And so that was going to be my career. That's what I was going to go into. But I became very interested in, in communism, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Cold War. All of that happened my senior year. In fact, my, um, my fall semester in my senior year was the fall of the fall of communism the fall of 1989. And I became really interested in the events going on around me. I was completely apolitical, Hannah. I, I was non-ideological. I didn't know what a Republican was, what a Democrat was. 
And I, but I became fascinated by these different events and I became fascinated at the roles of Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, Pope John Paul II, Kyle Gorbachev, uh, Boris Yeltsin, Vaclav Havel, Lech Walesa, Solidarity Movement, what was going on in Poland. And I just dove into this stuff um, as a science major, almost like somebody, you know, with test tubes, right? Very objective. Yeah, I had I had no axe to grind. I had no previous biases. And I was fascinated, too, by these people on campus called liberals who, you know, the, the first column that I wrote a letter to the editor of the student newspaper, the Pitt News, which published daily. It's a daily newspaper, Monday through Monday through Thursday. And it was defending Reagan. Reagan's decision to arm the Contras, which to me just made complete sense. And I got called a Nazi of all things for that. A Nazi, right? A Nazi. I'm thinking, why are they calling me a Nazi? I remember telling my telling this to my dad. My dad, I got called a Nazi. He's like, a Nazi? And I said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, What are you writing about Hitler? I said, No, I'm not writing about. It. I wrote this, I wrote this letter to the editor, and the guy published it and as a column, it's about arming the Contras. And I said, and the other thing, Dad, I had written a second column on uh, on why the homeless, homeless problem shouldn't be blamed on Reagan, right? Again, I did this as like a science major. And for that, I got called racist for the first time in my life, right? And it's like, well, what does this have to do with race? And, 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 and I just learned then and there that, and, and in fact, maybe my critics should have learned too, that when you attack me with these things, I, it just makes me angrier. And, and so I ended up becoming uh, editorial page editor of the student newspaper. So here, here I was a, a pre-med major um, writing editorials, columns for the student newspaper on all the stuff in the year 1989, 1990. And I eventually picked up my bachelor's degree in political science, applied to graduate schools, went to Washington, the School of International Service at American University, got my master's there, went on and got my PhD and, and became, uh, this became my field of study. And really beginning with, as John Lenchowski and others know, the study of the role of Ronald Reagan and the collapse of communism. And then that led to um, John Paul II as well. I did a book called A Pope and a President, which I talked about at IWP. And so this became a kind of um, lifelong subject. And and and, and also too, I, I, I read the Communist Manifesto for the first time once I was completely done with all my schooling. Never actually read it in college, just like you could be a poli-sci major and never read the Constitution. I know kids who have gone to law school and have not read the Constitution. So you can learn about Marxism and never actually read Marx. Um, Michael Knowles wrote the foreword to this book, and he quotes Ronald Reagan, who said something like, um, a, a, a communist is somebody who reads Marx, an anti-communist is somebody who understands Marx. Right. Um, although I, I think a lot of pro-communists have never even actually read Marx. I think if you just read Marx, you'll become an anti-communist. I don't know how anybody reads this drivel and walks away from it thinking, oh, oh this is good stuff. Right. Oh, I, 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 that that absolutely baffles me. I, I mean, you you read it and it's like reading Herbert Marcuse and some other people. You read this stuff and you're like, this is the work of madmen. How could anybody believe any of this, right? Shame on you if you if you take any of this serious. I don't see how you can blame it on, on somebody's youth or anything. It's just self-contradictory 
impossible, impractical nonsense from the very beginning. I don't know how anybody reads this stuff and comes away from it supporting it. doesn't make any sense to me. My next question kind of um, goes along with the last point that you that you made. Um, how can we fight against cultural Marxism seeping into our culture? Well, it's a good question. And, and that's where a lot of the Marxism is being applied today to culture. And, uh, and I wrote a couple pieces on this for American Spectator, Cultural Marxism and its Conspirators, um, part one and part two. I mean, you could search the word cultural Marxism on Google. And what pops up is um, uh, white nationalist anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, which again shows how big, what a problem big tech is. You've got some, I don't know, 14-year-old right, writing the little definitions for Google on what cultural Marxism means. I mean, if you think that that's what cultural Marxism is, I mean, you're, you're unbelievably lazy. I, I, I mean, that, that is absurd. I, read Gramsci. Uh, 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 read Max Horkheimer. Read, read any of these early people from the Frankfurt School. Read Wilhelm Reich. Wilhelm Reich was a sexual Marxist. He was trying to create a unified field of Freudianism, Marxism. He literally coined the term and wrote the book, The Sexual Revolution. Um, Kate Millett wrote Sexual Politics. Uh, I have on my desk at home, Patrice Cullors, the founder of Black Lives Matter, um, her memoirs with the, with the intro from Angela Davis. And, and Angela Davis uses the word comrades like four or five times in the first four or five paragraphs to describe Patrice. They're applying um, their Marxism to cultural, gender, sexuality, and even racial stuff, which is really weird because Marxism was originally intended to be applied to economics, class, wealth redistribution. But if you go to the website today of People's World, the About section, they issue a call for what they call cultural workers, of all things. So, you know, they're dabbling in culture. That's where they are. They're, they're in the area of culture more than they are even economics. That's where the battle is being waged by so many of today's modern Marxists. Um, the next question I have, uh, does this more diabolical element of communism persist, manifest differently in societies that don't have strong Christian backgrounds like China or North Korea? Well, unfortunately, no. It, it, some of the places where Marxism has had its greatest success has been in, in, in uh, religious countries. In fact, it was, I find it chillingly ironic that it was in, it was the Congress of Vienna, 1815, that Tsar Alexander called for his holy alliance to try to get nations to incorporate the principles of Christianity into the way they conduct relations with one another. And 100 years later, it was that nation of Russia, of the Russian Orthodox Church, that, that became the headquarters, the home of the global communist revolution, of all things. Probably the most religious country in the Western Hemisphere over the last 60, 70 to 100 years, other than the United States, was Cuba. And, and, and look at the war on religion there. This will, people will find this really stunning, but, it, but it's true. Uh, Pyongyang was once known as the Jerusalem of the East. Pyongyang, of all things. So North Korea, that, that area, that region was very, very religious. 
uh, some of the countries that have best resisted communism have done so because because of their religious patrimony, such as, for example, example Poland, right? Um, Marx country. In fact, really the key there above all was, was, was the force of religion and the church. But otherwise, and I think this is kind of a reflection, Hannah, of another kind of insidious diabolical aspect of communism. It, it's that it goes to, it, sl it slithers into these religious countries and religious societies. If I may get religious about this, right? It's as if the devil looks and says, ah, that's the country that I want. I want that one, right? Uh, it leaves alone a country that's already without God, without religion, and where people are maybe practicing voodoo or whatever else. He says, no, I want Cuba, right? I want, I, I want that head on my platter, right? That's the country that I want. That's the country that I'm going after. North Korea, Pyongyang, that's the one, that's the one that I want. This, um, my next question, I know you kind of mentioned um, there was, you know, religious undertones kind of with Marx and how he, you know, grew up in that sense. Would you say that Marx's ideology was a sort of religion? And do you think that he hijacked any key themes from Christianity to create this kind of false religion? Oh, yeah, all the time. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs, right? I mean, that's a twisting and perversion of a, of a verse from scripture. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess it up. But the actual scripture verses um, from each according to his abilities, each according to his, uh, from, yeah, I, I, I'm getting it wrong, but <clears throat> look it up. You'll find it. You'll find it right away. It's in the, it's in the New Testament. And Marx does that a lot. There's a lot of um, aping of God and aping of religious language. And one of the biggest mistakes that kind of religious left woke Christians say all the time is, well, the communists have, you know, they have a lot of this right. Uh, they're doing the gospel pretty well, better than a lot of Christians. No, I, I, no. I, 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 I quote in the book a letter from Dorothy Day's Catholic worker, of all things, which is really well done, where they're rejecting Earl Browder's outstretched hand, Communist Party USA to Catholics in the 1930s. And Dorothy Day's group, they say, no, 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 no. Look, you may agree with us on wanting to help some workers and wanting to help the poor, but we cannot be communists, right? You have a strictly atheistic, materialistic philosophy that rejects God. Um, in, in fact, Pope Pius XI and Quadragesimo Anno says um, one cannot at the same time be a, a Christian and a socialist. And he says, to the extent that, that communists have anything in common with the gospel, and thus people that want to help the poor have some, some sympathies toward communism, he says, if you want to help the poor, just practice the Christian gospel, right? It, so you, communism has 100 attributes, and 98 of them are, are insidious, but it's like, Oh, but they want to help the poor. Oh, there's a lot in common here with Christianity, right? No, I mean, it's just, it, it, so what? Uh, they're wrong on everything else. You don't look at that and say, oh, we got we got one thing in here. They have, there must be a lot in common between communism and Christianity. No, that's really muddled thinking. Um, it, it's, it, it, it was um, strictly a materialistic philosophy. And as Benedict XVI and John Paul II said, man does not live on bread alone. In fact, that's what, what Christ told Satan, right? 
Man does not live on bread alone. Augustine said we have a God-shaped vacuum in each of us that only God can fill. It's not a dollar-shaped vacuum in each of us, right? We, 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 we seek not strictly economic materialism, right? We, we're hardwired for God. And so for the communists to reject all of that, have their religion wrong, their philosophy wrong, their anthropology wrong, their economics wrong, all of that wrong, right? Um, that's why this ideology has been so destructive. Thank you. Um, I believe we have time for one more question, and I think this is kind of a good last question. Um, what elements of our culture, besides books, do you feel are effective to rescue that third of U.S. population from the delusions that they've been sold? Yeah, it's a great. It's a great way to end. Video, video. Take videos like this, and and send this to anybody you know who's sympathetic to communism. Have them listen to it. Yeah, they don't have to sit down and read a book. Most people won't sit down and read a book. The I did a um, before I even really knew what it was, Hannah. Which I know this is going to sound really bad, but I did a PragerU video. And the PragerU videos were already, you know, enormously popular. But I did one called something like, who was, who was the real Karl Marx? I think this was around 2017, 2016. In fact, they contacted me after I wrote a Wall Street Journal piece on this. So it was before this book came out. And that's like a three to four minute long video. Man, that thing had three million hits. At, between, between YouTube and the PragerU website within like a couple of weeks like 3 million hits. And I don't even know what it is now. It's probably five or 6 million. And so many people, young people in particular, are being educated by getting these three to four minute video clips. So let's take advantage of big tech, which in many ways is killing us. But let's use platforms like this to try to influence people and teach them and educate them. Educate, educate, educate. And and I think uh, platforms like this and what um, IWP is doing are so crucial to that. I commend you all. Well, great. Thank you for this very informative talk. Um, everyone, please go check out Dr. Ken Gore's book, um, The Devil and Karl Marx. Um, I would like to thank all of you who joined us here on Zoom and Facebook. If you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP, or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Ken Gore. Thank you, Hannah. Take care. God bless. You too.